We are starting today a new sermon series in which we're going to spend several months looking at Romans chapter 5 through 8. Romans chapter 5 through 8, some of the most important chapters uh, in all the Bible. And I think it's going to be a really rich time for us together as as God's people, as the church, to take a look at these uh, four chapters in the book of Romans. Um, Just a great, great uh, series of of chapters there. I encourage you, um, as maybe you've seen in the bulletin, to from time to time throughout uh, the next several months, uh, read through chapters 5 through 8 of the book of Romans and really familiarize yourself with this this text. Um, It's going to be a good time, a great time, and we're going to kick it off today, uh, this morning. We're going to kick off this new sermon series. Uh, For those of you who are guests with us this morning, Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. My name is Drew. Pastor Mike mentioned that earlier. Uh, Our senior pastor, Pastor Ken's out of town this week, and so uh, I'm filling in in the pulpit uh, today. I just wanted to let you know that, and that if you're here, welcome. We're we're glad that you're here. Uh, What we're going to do this morning, we're going to start off just by looking at one portion of one verse in chapter 5. So we're going to start off just looking at one portion of the first verse of chapter 5 in the book of Romans. And so what I want you to do is open up to that chapter, chapter 5, stay there, um, and keep your Bibles open because we're going to be flipping around in the first several chapters of the book of Romans because chapter 5, verse 1, starts off with the word, therefore. Therefore. And so what The Apostle Paul, who wrote the book of Romans, the letter to the Roman church, he's assuming with that word, therefore, that you know what came before. He's assuming that you have followed his line of argument, and you know why he has that word, therefore. So, we're going to start off in chapter 5, verse 1, but we're going to go back and kind of trace Paul's argument to see how he arrived at the first verse of chapter 5. But before we do that, let's just bow for a moment and let's ask God for his help. Father, we do want right now just to um, humble ourselves before you and to ask for your spirit to be at work in us this morning because we recognize that what we're about to do, which is open up your word and um, try to understand your truth and apply it to our lives, that that can only happen if your spirit is at work within us. Uh, at work in me as the one preaching your word, and for those who are hearing your word, um, your spirit is necessary to apply it as we ought to. And so we are reliant on you this morning. We're asking for you to work in our hearts. And uh, so we just want to commit this time to you as we open up your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to look at chapter 5, verse 1 in just a moment. I want to start off with a quote. It's by Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein once said that if I were given one hour to save the planet, I would spend 59 minutes defining the problem and one minute solving it. 59 minutes to define the problem and one minute to solve it. Now, whatever you may think of Einstein's ratio of defining the problem versus solving the problem, his point is is fairly clear. And that is before a solution can actually be made, 
We need to have a thorough understanding of the problem. We need to know what's going on before we can actually offer a solution. Because if a solution is offered without understanding the problem, then it's not really a solution. Right? And we get this. This kind of basic intuitive truth. We understand this. We get this. We function this way on a daily basis. For example, uh, hiring a carpenter is a great solution. It's a great solution if the problem that you have is you need to remodel your home. A carpenter is a great solution. But if your house has just burned down, right, if it's just burned down, then what you need is the fire department. That would be a more fitting solution, right? Uh, Calling the fire department is a great solution if your house is burning down, but if your house has just been robbed, then a better solution would be to call 911. The fire department's not going to do you much good. A better solution would be to call 911. Because a solution is really only a solution if it addresses the actual problem. Right? If it addresses the problem, then it's a useful solution. But in order to come up with a useful solution, we have to have an accurate diagnosis of the problem. We have to know what's going on. And this intuitive truth, this basic truth that we all get, that we all understand, is absolutely fundamental when it comes to understanding the human problem. It's fundamental when it comes to understanding the problem of the human race. Because it doesn't take long to look around and to recognize that something has gone wrong with the human race. Something's wrong. And so throughout um, human history there have been various opinions as to what exactly has gone wrong. There's a lot of different ideas as to what exactly has gone wrong with the human race. And so some have suggested that the root problem with humanity is actually ignorance. That's the root problem. We just don't know enough. And so what's needed, the solution to remedy that situation is more information, more education, more knowledge. That's what we need to fix the human problem. Well, others have said it's not so much a lack of knowledge as much as it is a lack of self-esteem, right? It's a lack of a positive self-image. Humanity just doesn't view itself as, as it ought to. And so what's needed, the solution to remedy that situation is more positive self care or greater self-image, positive thinking, that will solve humanity's fundamental problem. Others have disagreed with both of those ideas, and they've said that's not what the issue is. The issue is the unequal distribution of wealth. That's the core problem with humanity. And so the, the issue is about economics and greedy capitalists. That's the core issue. And so what's needed, the solution, is greater state control over the economy. That's what will resolve the human problem. Well, God has weighed in on this issue as well. He's got something to say about what has gone wrong with the human race, and he's also supplied a solution. He's got something to say. And in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, the first verse of our sermon series, He he tells us what that solution is. So look at your Bibles, chapter 5, verse 1 of the book of Romans. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, 
We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Paul says that God's solution to the human problem is found in what he calls justification by faith. That's the solution. Now, what does that word mean, justification? It's not a word that we probably use all that much. For Paul, the word justification means to be declared righteous. If you've been justified, you have been declared righteous. It means that you've been given a new status or a new standing with God that you yourself didn't actually deserve. It means that instead of being declared guilty in God's sight, which is what we all deserve, God can declare us not guilty. And the basis for this not guilty verdict, this not guilty status, isn't based on our righteousness. It's not anything that we bring to the table. It's based solely on the righteousness of God's Son. That's what it means to be justified. We're going to spend a little bit more time unpacking what that phrase means, justification by faith. But if that's the solution, right? Chapter 5, verse 1, if that's the solution, then what's the problem? What seems to be the human problem? We're going to kind of work our way backwards here this morning. So starting with the solution, justification by faith, we're going to work backwards and ask, well, what seems to be the problem? Why is justification by faith a fitting solution to the human problem? Well, the reason that it's a fitting solution to the human problem is because God has said that the root problem with humanity is sin. In fact, he says that all humanity is trapped in sin and is in need of rescue. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. All humanity trapped in sin and is in need of rescue. In chapter 1, verse 18, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. You see, Paul is saying that throughout human history, God has graciously been at work revealing himself in creation to all of humanity in order that they might respond to him. That they might respond positively to him. But instead of God's revelation to humanity, instead of it responding, them responding in worship like they should, they respond negatively. And so it leads to their condemnation. Because instead of responding to God's truth positively, Paul says that they suppress God's truth. They suppress it, which is called sin. They push back against their creator, and they declare themselves to be rebels. They push back. Paul continues this line of argument. Look at verse 21. He says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, and birds, and animals, 
and reptiles. In these opening chapters of the book of Romans, Paul's burden is to show that all humanity is trapped in sin and is in need of rescue. That's his burden. He's starting off talking that we're we're all trapped in sin. But here in chapter 1, Paul's primary target is the Gentile world. He wants to show that the Gentile world is trapped in sin. This is all non-Jews. And he says that instead of worshiping the Creator like they should, they worship what the Creator has made, which is idolatry. They become idolaters. He says in verse 23, that they exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And then in verse 25, look at verse 25, he says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who was forever praised, amen. Paul says the entire Gentile world, including you and me, are guilty of idolatry. He says, we're all guilty of exchanging the worship of God for the worship of created things. This is what we do. This is the human problem. Now to the Jews of Paul's day, and and by the way, when Paul was writing this letter to the Roman church, it would have been made up of both Jews and Gentiles. Both would have been overhearing Paul's letter read aloud to the Roman church. But to the Jews during Paul's day, idolatry was understood to be the characteristic sin of the Gentile world. This is what the Gentiles were known for, idolatry. You want to know what they're known for? They're known for idolatry. And so by indicting the entire Gentile world, Paul is saying that there's this fundamental problem with the human heart. And that problem is that it constantly worshiped things that it shouldn't worship. It's constantly making gods out of things it shouldn't. It's constantly depending on things and trusting in things and relying on things that it shouldn't. This is what the human heart does. Now today, most people don't go around worshiping literal figurines, little images that are made out of wood or clay or stone or gold. Most people don't do that today. But Idols are still worshipped today just as much as they were in the ancient world, just as much as in Paul's day. In fact, an idol is anything that you trust in more than you trust in God. It's anything that you look to to give you what only God can ultimately give you. Things like security, significance in life, fulfillment in life, happiness, These things that God, only God can ultimately give you, when we look to other things to give us those things, then we've made made it an idol. And Paul says that this is what the human heart does. It suppresses God's truth, and instead it makes idols. And so in chapter 1 of the book of Romans, Paul says that instead of God's revelation leading the Gentile world to worship, it leads to idolatry. Because in our rebellious hearts, we suppress God's truth and we worship what shouldn't be worshipped. This is what Gentiles do. Not Not too good for the Gentile world. And at this point in Paul's argument in chapter one, he he anticipates something that his Jewish countrymen might be thinking. 
He, he knows there are Jews that are overhearing this indictment of the Gentile world, and he anticipates what they might be thinking. That they might be thinking, well, it was sure a good thing God chose us and not the Gentiles for the plan of salvation. Wasn't it good that the, that the God of the universe chose the Jews through whom he would bless the world and not the Gentiles? Paul anticipates this. He knows what they're thinking. And in chapter 2, he turns the tables on his Jewish countrymen and he says, not so fast. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. Chapter 2, verse 17. Paul says, now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship with God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, by the way, these are all ways of describing the Gentiles, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law, the law of Moses, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. God gets a bad rap because of you. You see, Paul says it's not just the Gentiles who have rebelled against God. It's not just them who have this heart that suppresses the truth. He says the Jews are guilty as well. They too have this rebellious heart that suppresses God's truth and worships what shouldn't be worshipped. In fact, of all the nations of the earth, the Jews alone had the least amount of reason to rebel against God. Because as Paul alludes to in the text I just read, they received from God his very words, the law of Moses. And so if anybody had the least amount of reason to rebel, it would have been them. But Paul says because the human heart is trapped in sin, it suppresses even this greater revelation that was given to humanity. Even then, it will suppress God's truth because this is what the human heart does. And because of this, Paul says, because of their rebellion, because Jew and Gentile alike rebel against God, Paul says they are both under God's wrath. They're both under God's wrath. Look again at chapter 1, verse 18. Paul is addressing the Gentile world. He's addressing the Gentiles in chapter 1, verse 18. And he says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. God's wrath is being revealed against the Gentile world. And he goes on in chapter 1 to describe how that wrath is being revealed. And he says three times it's revealed by God giving to sinful humanity what their sinful hearts most desire. He just gives them over to it. Is that what you want? I'll give it to you. That's how his wrath is being revealed against sinful humanity, specifically the Gentile world. But it's not just the Gentiles. The Jews, too, are under God's wrath. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. In chapter 2, he's addressing the Jews. 
And he says this in verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul says because of their rebellion, because they keep suppressing the truth, Jew and Gentile, they're under God's wrath. And because God is a God of justice, he has to oppose sin and evil Wherever he confronts it, he has to oppose it. He's a God of justice. And so the sinful heart is under God's wrath. This is Paul's argument. Now I recognize that talking about God's wrath is not very comforting. It's it's an uncomfortable topic to talk about God's wrath. His just anger towards sin and evil it's, it's not a comforting topic to talk about in this context because we recognize we have sinful hearts. His wrath is directed toward us. But there are two extremes that we want to avoid when talking about God's wrath. Two extremes that are actually quite popular today. The first extreme is to think that God's wrath or God's anger is like ours. It's not like our anger. That's the first extreme that we want to avoid. His anger is not like our anger. Our anger is often petty. It's impulsive. It's it's irritable. It's petulant. It's so often over the top. It's not proportional. It's often not motivated by justice like God's anger is. It's often not in response to real not just perceived, but real sin and evil in the world. Our, our, our anger, it's often done in what we think is evil, what we think is sin. Our anger is not like God's. God's anger is just. The second extreme that we want to avoid is to deny God's wrath altogether. It's very popular today to deny God's wrath, to deny that he even gets angry at sin or at sinners. We want to avoid that extreme because that denies a key aspect of God's just character. God is a God of justice. We don't want to deny that he has wrath. Now to be sure, God is a God of love. And we, we sang about that already this morning. God is a God of love but he's also a God who hates evil. Because of this, he has to confront it wherever he sees it. It's a God of justice. And so in the first two chapters of the book of Romans, this letter to the Roman church, Paul says that Jews and Gentiles alike, because of their rebellion, they're under God's just wrath. And they're in need of rescue. They're in need of rescue. Something's got to happen to get them out of this situation. And Paul at this point in his letter, in his argument that he's developing, he he recognizes that there's probably one line of argument that his Jewish brethren are probably thinking. What about the law, Paul? What about obedience to the law? Couldn't obedience to God's law get us out of this situation? Couldn't we just obey God to get ourselves out of this situation? Wouldn't the law do that for us? Well, in chapter 3, Paul says that our rescue will not be accomplished 
by obeying God's law. Look at verse 19 of chapter 3. Verse 19 of chapter 3. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous. No one will be justified in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Paul says that the solution to the human problem, the fact that we're trapped in sin and deserving of God's wrath, will not be solved by trying to obey God's law. That's not a solution for us. It won't happen. And the reason is because the law is powerless to give sinners what they most desperately need, which is to be declared righteous in God's sight. The law can't do that for us. Instead, what the law does is it actually works against us. Paul says we become more conscious of our sin. When we try to obey God, we actually become more aware of how sinful we are, how short we come of God's standards. And so he says to his Jewish brothers and sisters, the law is going to work against you. It's not going to exonerate you like you hope. It's actually going to condemn you. It's going to reveal just how sinful you are. It's not an option for us. And the reason why it's not an option, the reason why it will not be the solution to free us from our situation is because of what he says in verse 9 of chapter 3. Look at verse 9 of chapter 3. Paul says, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Are we Jews any better than the Gentiles? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. We're under sin. The law is not an option because we're all under sin. We're powerless to obey God. And so his law is not going to help us. Not an option. Did you happen to notice at the end of verse 9 the precise wording that Paul used? Like, look, it's easy to miss. It's easy to read over it, especially if you're just kind of reading casually along. It's easy to miss. Notice at the end of verse 9 that Paul doesn't say that all people sin or that all people commit sins. Although that's true, and in chapter 5, he'll make that abundantly clear, that all people sin, all people commit sins. That's not precisely the wording that he uses. Notice that he also doesn't say that all people are sinners, although that is also true. But that's not precisely what he says. Instead, what Paul says is that all people are under sin. They're under sin. The fundamental root problem of humanity for Paul is not just that we commit sins. It's not just that we happen to sin or that we're sinners by nature. The fundamental problem is that we are enslaved to sin. We're under its power. We're prisoners to sin. That's the problem. We're under its control, its dominion, its mastery. It controls us. And we are unable to free ourselves from its grip. We're under sin. If you have the new NIV, the updated 2011, it will actually say the power of sin. We're under the power of sin. 
We're enslaved to sin. It's our master. We have to obey it. So why is that distinction important? Why is it important to point out precisely what Paul says at the end of verse 9? The fact that we're all under sin. Why is that important? Because if that's the problem with humanity, then the solution that God offers us has to fix that problem. The fact that we're under sin. And so what's needed to remedy our situation is not more knowledge. That's not going to help us. More knowledge. Greater self-esteem is not going to help our situation at all. And and greater government oversight, that's not going to help us. What we need is someone to rescue us from this situation. What we need is a liberator. We need someone to liberate us from the power of sin that keeps us in its grip and that keeps us under the wrath of God. And in Romans 3.21, Paul says that God himself will accomplish this rescue. Look at verse 21 of chapter 3. But now, a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Paul says that the solution to the human problem, the fact that we are trapped in sin and under God's wrath, has been dealt with by God's work of justification. Of justification, which is where God himself makes his own righteousness available to sinners through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. It means that instead of God declaring us guilty in his sight, he can declare us not guilty. He can declare us free from any liability of actually breaking his law, which we did. But the basis for this not guilty verdict, the reason he can say not guilty, is not because of our righteousness. It's because of the righteousness of his son, which God then credits to us. We get his righteousness. That's what it means to be justified. That's God's answer to the human problem. But there's still a question that remains, and that is that how can God do this? How can God justify sinners? How can he declare people who are trapped in sin and under God's wrath, justly under his wrath, how can he just declare them not guilty? How can he say that they're righteous in his sight? What gives him the right to do that? Well, the answer is found in what Jesus' death accomplished on our behalf. And Paul says that it accomplished two main things that gives God the right to justify sinners deserving of his wrath. The first thing that the death of Christ accomplishes that gives God the right to justify sinners is that his death frees us from the power of sin. Look again at verse 23. Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The redemption. We use that word a lot, but what exactly does that mean? 
The word redemption there, it means to liberate someone by paying a price. This was a common word that would have been used during Paul's day to refer to someone who paid a price to, who, to free or to buy the freedom of a slave or a prisoner. Redemption. And what Paul says in verse 24 is that it's actually Christ's death. Christ's death was the price that was paid to free us from our enslavement, our enslavement to sin. His death was our redemption. And on that basis, God can justify us, declare us not guilty. The second reason why the death of Jesus gives God the right to justify us is because because Christ's death appeases or satisfies God's wrath. Look at verse 25. Paul says, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. The phrase there, which the NIV translates sacrifice of atonement, is actually one Greek word. And it means to propitiate. If you have the ESV, that's what the ESV says, to propitiate. It means to appease God's wrath. God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement, as a sacrifice of of propitiation, to propitiate, to appease God's wrath. And that word would have reminded Paul's listeners about the Day of Atonement, which is where the, the blood of the sacrifice would have been sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant, and that's where sins were atoned for and where God's wrath was appeased. But in verse 25, Paul says that the cross is now the place where God atones for sins and turns away or appeases his wrath once and for all. It's done. And so on those grounds, he can justify sinners. You see, the gift of the cross is that it is God himself who willingly and lovingly steps into our place to satisfy his own just demands. It's God himself who takes our place in the person of Jesus Christ to satisfy his own wrath on sinful humanity. He takes the punishment that we deserve and by stepping into our place, dying to the death that we deserved, he solves the human problem. He frees us from the power of sin And he frees us from God's wrath. But there's still one question that remains. And that is that how do we receive this righteous standing? How does God's work of justification come to be applied to us? How do we actually come to be be declared righteous in God's sight? We'll look at, again, verse 22. He says, This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. We come to be justified, to be declared righteous when we believe, when we have faith in Jesus Christ. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to have faith in Jesus Christ? Well, it means more than just giving Uh, intellectual assent to a set of propositions about Jesus. It means more than just believing certain things to be true about Jesus. 
In this context, faith is about reliance. It's about relying on Jesus to do for us what we can't do for ourselves, which is to secure a righteous standing before God. When we have faith in Jesus, we're relying on Him to secure that righteous standing before God that we cannot secure for ourselves. And it means renouncing any other path, any other attempt to make ourselves right with God except for the death of Jesus Christ alone. God's promise in chapter 3 and throughout chapter 4, as Paul will continue, is that all who have faith in Jesus Christ, all who are relying on his death to make themselves right with God, will be declared righteous in his sight. That's his promise. So what are you relying on? What are you relying on to make yourself right with God? Because the reality is we're all relying on something. We're all looking to something to hopefully God look at us and declare us not guilty. Declare us righteous. We're all relying on something. And what Paul says is that if it's not the death of Jesus, then it's the wrong solution. Let's pray about that this morning. Father, we thank you for this gift that you have given us. We thank you for the cross and what you accomplished through the cross for sinful humanity to be applied to all those who have faith. For those of us who have faith in Jesus, who are relying on him, we, we give you praise, God, eternally so. And our request, Lord, is that you make us ever more grateful for this gift that you have given us, this provision that you provided for us in Christ. For those who have yet to put faith in Jesus Christ, we pray that your spirit would be at work prompting those to turn to you in faith. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.